Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast, powered by Kasoon Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm honoured to be joined by the amazing Chrissy Wolf, founder of the hit YouTube channel, Law & Broader, Solicitor of the Year 2019, Woman of the Year 2019, legal vlogger and mentor, Law Tech Geek, winner of Birmingham Young Professional of the Year 2018 in legal, chair of Birmingham Junior Lawyers Division, and day by day, if that's not enough, a solicitor of a top 20 law firm in the UK. So welcome, Chrissy. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to be here. Not at all. I mean, that's quite an impressive introduction. Um, I guess we have to, which is customary on the Legally Speaking podcast, start with our icebreaker question. Suits. So on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real in your opinion, what are you giving out of 10? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me which character I'd be then. I was oh, we can add that in as well. Uh, on, on how realistic yeah. it is. Oh, I think compared to being an English lawyer, very, very unrealistic. Uh, I'd probably give it a two or three on the realism scale. Yeah. But I know US litigation is quite different, so it may be more similar to that. Um, but I'm pretty sure even in the US, you don't get lawyers who are kind of so jacks of all trades and just <laughs> deal with a totally different area of law every single day. And character then? Oh, I'd, I'm Jessica all day. Well, I'd like to think that I'm Jessica. Whether I'm actually Jessica, I don't know, but she's she's my idol, I think. Here's some wolf. That has a bit of a ring to it. Yeah, that's good, you know. That's, yeah, that's that could good. Be, that could be the next one. Mm. Could be the next one. Yeah, yeah. So look, we need to try and digest your journey in a short period of time because it is really amazing. And I know we share a lot of um, contacts, particularly through the London Young Lawyers Group and in the legal world generally. Um, but I want to talk about your journey of basically how someone who I believe got C, D, E, E at their A-level grades has gone on to achieve and do so much for the legal sector. Because I genuinely think that's a truly inspirational story. And I think it shows with the right drive and passion, you can really achieve anything, right? Right. Well, it still makes me shudder when I hear them said out loud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's start from the beginning then. What Did you always want to be a lawyer? No, uh, not at all. I'm a very late convert to law. Actually, I always wanted to be a vet. Okay. So I've got a kind of a weird backstory that I was home educated when I was younger. So uh, well into my teenage years. So yeah, my mum actually taught me at home. So I was homeschooled. Wow. Yeah, very early on, surrounded by animals. So I always wanted to be a vet and that was my dream when I grew up to be a vet. Um, did okay in my in my exams as I was growing up. And then as soon as I went to school, academics just started going downhill. And I think that was probably largely due to massive culture shock, really change in learning style, change in, you know, the whole the whole method of teaching, being around people my own age, just really changed up everything really for yeah. me. And I my academics suffered quite a lot as a result of that, which is how I ended up with such poor A-levels and uh, being a vet requires almost, well, actually definitely as good academics as being a lawyer. So very, very academic subject. So instantly I knew that I wasn't going to be able to kind of fulfill my dream of going to vet school. So, but I was still determined that that's what I wanted to do. And I'd been given a, pro a provisional place at Birmingham Uni to study animal biology, which is what I'd factored was going to be my route in. I thought I'll do my animal biology degree, hopefully do well in that. And then I can do a postgrad in, yeah. or at least kind of convert, maybe knock a couple of years off my vet degree. That was a plan. Did not hit my grades even to get into animal biology for to go to Birmingham Uni. So I had to rethink that. But I was still really determined <laughs> to go to Birmingham Uni as well. I just, out of all the universities I visited, Birmingham, I just loved. I just got such a great feel for it as soon as I went there. And I just thought, this is this is a place. I don't want to go anywhere else. So 
I had to ring up Birmingham Uni and argue with them, basically. And they said, look, you're just nowhere near the grades for Apple <laughs> Pilot Chief. You know, sorry, call back another day when you've got better A-level grades. Uh, so I had to ring, ring around a bit, actually. Just rang all the different science departments, just anybody's whose number I could find. I yeah. rang to try and plead with them to tell them my story and hopefully somebody would accept me. So eventually I found somebody who was very nice and said, well, you're not going to get into any of our, our primary science degrees. However, we do offer a foundation course in chemistry, at which point my eyes roll back in my head because I hated <laughs> chemistry. I'd, <laughs> I'd done biology, chemistry, physics and maths at A-level because that was a really sensible decision. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, chemistry, just chemistry and maths were my least favorite out of those two. So when they said a foundation course in chemistry, chemistry I just thought oh this is this is the worst news but if this is the way I'm going to get into Birmingham Uni then this yeah. is what I'm going to have to do so suck it up so basically I did my foundation course in chemistry and they said by the way you also have to get first in that if you want to then progress on to one of our undergraduate science degrees so I said yeah. right okay great also have to get first so I did that I did accept my place doing foundation chemistry and I did get a first and they did then let me start on my animal biology degree from first year. So I then went on to do my animal biology degree, uh, graduated three years later. So I spent a total of four years uh, at uni. Then as I was coming to the end of my biology degree, kind of thought, I'm not sure if I want to do another five years at uni, being, yeah. which is what it would require still to be a vet, even with the animal biology degree. So I kind of started looking into other options and didn't really have another option. I'd never really thought about doing anything else, in all honesty. Went to a careers advisor at Birmingham Uni who said, and I went to him and said, look, what do people do with, with my degree? And he said, oh, you could go into research, did not fancy research, or you could go into yeah. teaching. Didn't really want to do that either. And then the third thing he came up with, he goes, actually, quite a lot of people who have science degrees end up going into law. And I kind of hesitated and thought, because I pictured law as, you know, big stuff, the offices, loads of paperwork. Not yeah. for me. I was kind yeah. of an outdoorsy girl. You know, I'd done horse riding to a fairly high level. And I really didn't kind of like that, the thought of it. But I thought, okay, let's look at this and maybe let's do some work experience. And he kind of showed me that there were different facets. Well, it wasn't all contracts and corporate and commercial. There were actually a lot of different facets of the law. One of them was medical law, which kind of appealed given my science background. I was quite quite interested in doing that. So I kind of did a bit of research into different areas. I looked into intellectual property as well, because that's another kind of major area that people tend to go into with science degrees. So I looked yeah. at those two primarily and then decided that I really was more keen on doing the medical side of things and definitely the claimant side because I was much more of a people person yeah. and intellectual property is still quite kind of corporate and commercial. I really wanted to work with people so or animals, but I'd abandoned <laughs> that. So it was going to be people. <laughs> yeah. Less so, furry people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so really pursued that route, but again, was obviously met with the same hurdle that I'd had several years before in going into law it was a really academic career. And there was me thinking that I'd kind of got over that by getting a first in my foundation chemistry and then going on to get 2-1 in animal biology. But no, A-level still important, sadly, even though yeah. it was several years before. So kind of re was reliving my nightmare all over again, trying to apply for training contracts. Well, that was going to be my next question. How did you manage to secure a training contract with your, your current firm? And how did you handle any rejections along the way? Because obviously we get lots of people writing in saying, I'm losing the will, you know, is it going to really happen? So yeah, tell us your journey. 
Yeah. So I think I settled early on on what area that I wanted to do. I was really keen on doing the medical law side of things. And then within that, I looked at different firms. And fortunately, I, I was actually really fortunate in that the biggest firm for personal injury and medical negligence is, is Irwin Mitchell. Yeah. And they actually don't put as much focus on academics. They don't have a minimum academic requirement, which a lot of law firms do because I knew I was going to have to be realistic and I did apply initially kind of during my final year of uni before I'd really settled on exactly what area of law I wanted to do I sort of scattergunned a few different places and found that the places where they had really high academic requirements, I was pretty much just banned from applying. As soon as I got yeah. to that stage, they sort of, this notice that came up said, you cannot proceed any further with your application because you don't have the grades required. And even the ones that would let me pr- proceed, just, you know, just, I wasn't going to get very far. So I was quite conscious by the time I got into my second year of applying, which is when I started my GDL and had really kind of focused where my, the area of law that I wanted to do and where I wanted to apply. I was very conscious of just not not applying to places where I just didn't meet the criteria where I was miles off because that was just going to be a pointless and, you know, painful experience because there, there was no way that I was going to get through. So I was realistic in where I applied to and I did apply to places which placed more emphasis on kind of transferable skills and work experience because I had a lot of that. I'd done a lot of different types of work and I had done quite a few legal work placements by the time I got round to my second round of applying. So I was conscious of that. Unfortunately, the main place I wanted to apply to actually didn't place as much focus on academics. So I was really lucky in in that respect. Um, Because I I get a lot of people kind of saying, oh, you know, I've got very good A-levels. Please, can you tell me the firms to apply to? And I said, well, I don't think you should really do it like that. Actually, I think you need to to know what your passion is. You need to know what area of law you want to go into. And then look within that, because otherwise, if you start selecting where you want to apply just based on the grade boundaries, then you're not going to get no. very far. That you know, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse in a way, because you know you're going to end up doing something you don't want to do, a place you don't want to be, and you probably won't even get through the process either if that's been your selection criteria. It's just based on what their academic requirements are. So I always say to people, try and decide what area of law you want to do, what type of firms you want to apply for, and then look within that as to the ones which kind of fit with your skill set and what you can bring. So I was I was really fortunate in that Owen Mitchell was was looking for someone more with my skill set and fortunately didn't place as much weight on the academics. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a long slog. It took me a couple of years, a lot, lot of rejections. But yeah, eventually I did. And I basically just built up my CV as much as I could in the other areas because I think you do get some firms who kind of do it on a point system, if you like. And if you don't score as highly on the academics, you can pull up your average by being yeah. strong in a lot of other categories. So I basically just tried to do that as much as I possibly could, just build up as many points on work experience, transferable skills, competencies, all of that kind of stuff and, and try and do it that way, which I think is how I ultimately got through the process and secured my training contract all that long time ago. And you're doing so successfully now in the law. Do you, a lot of questions people get in say, can they see themselves being a partner in the firm? Are they wanting to do that? Are they not wanting to do that? Do you yourself wish to or want to be a partner in a law firm? Yeah, I absolutely see myself progressing. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, very ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think anyone, anyone would say that I'm not. So obviously that is my, my ultimate goal is, yeah. is to progress, is to progress through the ranks for sure. Yeah. 
Good. Well, that's good that we've got a positive sponsor because I'm a big believer that people should wish to try and get to the, the top and partnership is a good thing. So I'm mm, really big pro yeah, on kind of promoting yeah. that. Um, okay, so we need to talk about all your other things outside of the day job. Um, <laughs> but my first question is, why is someone who's originally from the London surrounding areas so passionate about all things Birmingham? And why should lawyers think about Birmingham over London as well? Good question. Well, I started off, well, I've kind of briefly explained how I ended up in Birmingham and that I just kind of, I don't know whether it's by fluke or what, but I just ended up having a really amazing day when I went to visit Birmingham Union. I think we kind of developed an affinity for each other on that day. So definitely going through the uni process, I just really got on really well with my lecturers and just thought Birmingham was a great university. Ended up applying for training contracts in both London and Birmingham, actually, because I'm from near London originally. So I kind of would have would have gone either way, actually. But the role came up in Birmingham and I was pretty happy to to stay. And I think Birmingham's just such a great close-knit community. I think it's such a small city in a way, in terms of community, in terms of space, it's 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 what it's a second city, really. But in terms of community, it's very, yeah. very small. And I really enjoyed training as well um, at the Owen Mitchell office in Birmingham because everybody lived really close together, you know, like kind of like living in halls of residence, actually. And yeah, and I just found it very sociable, made friends really quickly, lots of opportunities to join kind of local organizations, local charities. So I'm an ambassador for a charity called Love Brum which started about five years ago um, and basically is a kind of platform charity for local smaller causes, which don't kind of have the marketing budget or, you know, don't have the resources to generate as much funds or as many funds as they need. So I joined that charity and that connected me with so many people as well, so many local businesses, so many local causes. um, And I got to know a load of people that way, actually. And then I can't. I think I kind of fell in love with it really after I launched Law and Broader, which is probably what we're about to talk about. Next and question. Just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So it was 2017. So I started my training contract in 2013, qualified in 2015, and then launched my YouTube channel Law and Broader in 2017. Which, if people don't know, is a hugely successful YouTube channel. So congratulations. <laughs> but it's you. probably worth for those who are new to it explaining what it is and yes, what it does. Yes, of course. Yeah, I'll kind of explain the back story. So as I've just explained, I had a pretty uh, tumultuous journey getting my training contracts. uh, And I really wanted to feedback really to other people who were struggling, because I know a lot of people are, it's incredibly competitive. The stats are ridiculous in, in terms of how many people are applying versus how many training contracts are available. And, you know, really someone like me shouldn't have got through the process in terms of looking, looking at my, looking at my academics, you'd probably say that given how competitive it is, I was probably one of the ones who shouldn't, who shouldn't have got there. And I know there are a lot of people who were in a similar situation to me who would probably be thinking about quitting and just not yeah. bothering if we, they had my academics or they had, ish, you know, various parts of the criteria that they didn't think that they met, they may just be tempted to think, well, it's so competitive that if I don't hit one of the criteria, there's just no point. I might as well just not bother. So I kind of wanted to explain a bit about my journey and and how I did it to try and kind of inspire some people who are perhaps struggling to to not give up. Um, But at the same time, I'm I'm realistic (laughs) in terms of you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, everybody, you know, everybody who wants to get through is going to get through. And, you know, if you've got really awful low levels, don't worry, you'll definitely get through. You know, it, it, it's not it's not a case of that. I'm still realistic about how difficult it is to to get through the process. But I just wanted to kind of give some advice back to people from what I did that I thought really helped me 
and just to kind of, you know, be be on a level with some people who are struggling, be an outlet for people yeah. who are going through that and saying, you know what, I, I did it too and it is tough and, you know, I'm here. <laughs> I think you're an excellent and positive role model. I like the fact it's called Law and Broader because, yes, you focus on the law, but also you talk about lifestyle as well and lots of other things connected. So, again, is it worth just sort of shedding a bit more on that in terms of mm. what people can get from that YouTube channel? Because I do think it's fascinating and really, really worth watching for people getting involved. Yeah, so it's kind of multifaceted, actually. So I started off by just sort of doing advice about the training contract process, really. And then a little bit about my lifestyle as well, because I kind of didn't want people to be lured into this sense that everybody who's a lawyer is kind of holed up in the office 24 hours a day and has no life. And I kind of wanted <laughs> yeah. to show that we can have a bit of fun as well. And it's not all being cooped up in inside your office behind your desk. So I definitely wanted to get that across in the yeah. broader side of things as well and just kind of show a bit more personality. And this is what I do on a week to week basis and, and stuff like that. And then the kind of law stuff has branched out into all kinds of things, really. Um, So I do a lot of news updates as well. Now, some commercial awareness type stuff. So if there are major news stories or major kind of updates, changes in the law or in the legal market that I think are useful for people to know about. And we'll be talking about the SQE at some point as well. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah. So the SQE is one of the things which I talk about quite a lot, actually, because it's obviously a major change. So, yeah, I do a lot of commercial awareness type stuff. I do interviews with people in the industry who I think are influential and can offer something to students. I do stuff about tech. I do a lot of updates about technologies because that's a passion of mine and I like talking about it. And I think it's something that you can't really avoid talking about it, particularly if you're trying to come through the process now. Um, It's a big topic and and something that you definitely need to be aware of. Um, I'm trying to think what else I do. All sorts of different stuff on there. Anything that's law or, or loosely related to law uh, is is on there from from week to week. Uh, yeah, I try I try and get one uploaded every couple of weeks, and they tend to differ between what I'm doing. Um, I, yeah, I've logged at the Legal Ed Conference a couple of weeks ago as well. So yeah. yeah, events and stuff that are relevant. Everything goes on there. Good. And so what are the future ambitions with the YouTube channel? I mean, basically going from a complete standing start Mm. to sort of thousands, you know, tons and tons of sort of people tuning in. What are the future ambitions you've got for for Law & Broader? Yeah. So it's kind of branched, it's branched out from YouTube as well now into events, which I really enjoy doing. I've done a few events and there's, and there's, I've got a few more planned for this year as well. So the YouTube channel is going to continue. My YouTube channel is pretty much subscriber driven actually. So it goes in the direction that my subscribers want it to, because that's the whole point. It's supposed to be a resource for people who are watching it. So it's much more beneficial for people to tell me what they want to see than for me to tell them. So I try and do as many kind of polls and ask for content advice, you know, as much as I can so that I can be sure that I'm catering to what people want to watch. So that's kind of naturally evolving, I suppose. Um, And the events, yep, I do a series of events through the year. I've got another couple coming up this year, which I'm really excited about. Um, So I've done a few in Birmingham. I'm branching out into London. Yeah, there's a the potential collaboration as well. Yes. Who knows? Watch the space. Yeah. So yeah. I've got one coming up in April. I'm actually secretly going international as oh. well. Later in the year, but I'm not going to say too much about that just yet. Stay tuned. Uh, so you have to stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. So the event stuff I, I really enjoy and that's primarily for aspiring lawyers and yeah. junior lawyers. So it's a mixture of stuff. It's not all training contract stuff. It's it's kind of a combination of of stuff that I think is important that's going on in the legal market at the moment, a lot about tech, a lot about how the market's changing, a lot about how what people are looking for in lawyers is changing, what clients are looking for in lawyers is changing. So topical issues, basically. And I try and have 
um, people who either come along or speak on the panel who are influential in their field. So yeah. try and get as many people involved as I can. Good stuff. And we're definitely going to talk a lot more about tech. I know that is an ambition we both share, actually. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk more firstly about mentoring, because you also do a lot of mentoring, but you have some of your own. So I firstly wanted to ask, you know, who are some of your mentors and, and, and why have you chosen those particular people? Yeah, I actually have a, a lot of mentors and I think different different people for different reasons. They're not yeah. all in law. Actually, I've got a couple, you know, a couple of, of really kind of key key mentors who've supported me um, that are in the legal field, but then also people who are in who are in business, um, different sectors, different people for different reasons. Definitely. I kind of take inspiration from people who have been very successful in their own careers. Uh, I take inspiration from people who are very junior in their careers, but have great creativity and great ideas. Yeah. I, you know, I also kind of try and surround myself with people who are you know, perhaps I'm very, I don't know what the opposite is of, of risk averse. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a go-getter and I try, I try to also surround myself with people who are perhaps a little bit more realistic sometimes just to say, you know, what, yeah. you can't just go off and do that. You've got to think about this, yeah. this and this. So I think it is very important to know your own personality type and sometimes know the weaknesses in your personality and make sure that you've got people around you to kind of manage you in, yeah. in that way so you know got people around you to, to build you up and push you forward and you've also got people around you to, to ground you and, and give you the real facts of the situation so yeah I'm I'm really lucky in that I have an absolutely amazing set of mentors all over the globe actually yeah not even just just in England but people who I've kind of sought out from reading their you know, especially from reading about the mentors who I've I've known personally but also people who I've sought out because yeah. I've loved what they've written and you know just ended up just reaching out to them and saying, hey, I really think we should collaborate or we should talk. And then it's it's gone from there to ending up in a, a really good mentoring relationship. So yeah, I have a lot of, of really strong, strong mentors in my life who who keep me grounded, <laughs> which is good. And there's a great back note or note through that, which again, for people listening in is, you know, Chrissy, who people follow her, you know, it's very much about putting yourself out there. If you want mentoring, you know, don't expect it to come to you, actually put yourself out there and go and get it, right? So talking yeah. more on the mentoring you do then, yes. um, you're involved with the 1 million mentors and you also mentor for the University of Law as well. So do you want to tell us a bit about your yeah. work and mentoring with, so with that? Yeah. So I became, I wanted to do mentoring quite early on, actually. So pretty much as soon as I got my training contract, I enrolled with the University of Law yeah. scheme and got a mentee. And I've been doing that for years and years now. And I've had really good mentees every year doing that. Um, and with the One Million Mentors scheme as well, actually. So One Million Mentors isn't specifically law. It can be law, but it's also just all kinds of young people who are trying to get into professional careers, yeah. all sorts of different careers, actually. But generally, they try and match people who are vaguely in the same career path. Um, so I've got a lot of I've got a lot of reward out of that. And that was another one of the reasons why I started the YouTube channel, actually, because I was really enjoying all the mentoring that I was doing, but I just aren't weren't enough hours in the day, basically, to to give any more mentees the time that I thought that they deserved and manage my day job. So I kind of saw YouTube as a bit of a online mentoring platform as well. And I think the subscribers that I do have, I kind of consider them mentees in a way. Yeah. You know, I kind of feel like I've gone from having like five mentees and now I've got like 4,000 mentees, which yeah. is great. And, you know, I can do that without actually, you know, have, taking the physical time. I can, you know, I can sit down, I spend my days doing the videos and I can reach many, many thousands of people rather than just one, which is is great. And I still do the one-to-one -one mentoring as well, um, but I use 
YouTube as kind of an outlet to to mentor many more people than I do face to face. Right. And on that, then you're also a professional ambassador for aspiring solicitors. So tell us more about that. Yeah. So aspiring solicitors, I came across really early on when I was sort of launching Law and Broader because I was looking for other stuff that was similar and looking for other organizations that were also supporting aspiring lawyers who were trying to come through the process and perhaps were at a bit of a disadvantage compared to to others. And I came across aspiring solicitors really early on and got in touch with Chris White and said, you know, is there anything that I can... can do to have any he let me know about the ambassadors scheme and I've actually sat on I think one one panel with him as well we did something at Bristol Uni which is great because I think what he's doing is brilliant he was one of the first kind of organizations to really start doing something like that and helping and helping law students who were a bit more disadvantaged to come through the process so I really admire what what he's done with aspiring solicitors and you know really support them in in everything that they do and that's a really good resource if, if you are looking for more help to get through the process and mentoring and events and they offer work experience and things like that. So definitely worthwhile checking out their website as well. Good stuff. And for those of you listening, thinking, and there's more she does as well. Yes, there is. So (laughs) chair of the Birmingham Junior Lawyers Division. Um, What are you trying to achieve through that? And tell us a bit more about that society. Yeah. So there's in, in Birmingham, we kind of have a bit of a split. We've got two sort of junior lawyers divisions, if you like. So we've got kind of the Birmingham Trainee Solicitor Society, which is basically trainees and paralegals actually and then we've got the Birmingham Solicitors Group which is kind of not newly qualified basically up to five years PQE which and they're both branches of the Law Society's Junior Lawyer Division so I chair the Birmingham Solicitors Group actually and I've been chair for the last couple of years and I did events before that as well so I've been been involved for quite some time actually and I really enjoy it it's it's really great but I've met so many great people through doing uh, the JLD actually and uh, yeah I've, I've I've really enjoyed being a part of that it's brilliant for networking um, so we tend to focus more on the the social side of things. We've got BTSS who do the more junior side. We've obviously got the Birmingham Law Society as yeah. well. And we tend to kind of be the, the fun one in the middle where we just get everyone Nothing together and do, yeah, we do a lot of social type stuff and they're always really well attended. And we have about seven or eight events throughout the year. Actually, it's, a lot of them are sporting focused. A lot of them are competitions. Um but it's just a really good way of, of bringing together all the law firms in the community. As I said, it's such a small community, especially that everyone, everyone knows each other. So it's yeah. a really good, it's just, you know, a good, good opportunity really for everyone to just kind of get together and have a good time. So I've really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed doing that. Good. And you've been nominated so for so many awards and won so many things. Which one has most stood out to you and why? And which one are you targeting next? Oh gosh, this is such a hard question actually, because they're all so, so different. I think when I won Birmingham Young Professional of the Year, which is the first thing that I won, I think that that's that sticks in my mind because it was kind of the first thing I'd ever won in my life, I think. <laughs> I I'm not a historic winner, really. So, And it wasn't something I expected to win at all. And it was just after I launched Law & Broader, like yeah. really soon afterwards. And I think, you know, it was just, that that does stick in my mind as just such, you know, and it's a, in Birmingham, it's a really big awards ceremony. And I'd been going to it for years and seen all these really impressive people win and just thought, oh, that'll never beat me in a million years. Uh, so I think when it when it was, it kind of was, yeah, it was kind of a surreal, a surreal moment. So I suppose that was the first one. 
Um, but yeah, since then it's it's impossible. They've all just been so unique in their own in their own way. I think solicitor of the year, mad in Birmingham because that's against everybody. You know, it's not a kind of junior lawyers thing. It's against all the solicitors in Birmingham. So I was kind of amazed by by that. There were some really great people in my category. Woman of the year again is is mad because that was all the business women in Birmingham yeah. as well, not just a, not just a legal ones. So that was again something that I never expected to win. And then junior lawyer of the year at the, at the excellence awards um was incredible because that's again like a na- the national law society so oh again yeah, for people it's listening been, in it's been, hearing yeah, those a levels to just, all of this anything's <laughs> achievable right yeah it's yeah i think we yeah still kind of in disbelief when i look back at it to be honest it's been just yeah since i launched law and broader it's just been back to back yeah. things going on but i've just enjoyed every minute of it really and just the support from the legal profession and the birmingham community has been yeah immense and i definitely wouldn't have achieved any of those things if i hadn't had so much support from from both those communities it was just just been incredible really yeah i can't believe it good um and one question before we get on to tech because i know we're itching both to talk about that um using this platform i guess you get a lot of common questions through your youtube channel or you know a lot of the same questions or similar questions is there one that you get asked a lot that you perhaps like to use this opportunity to answer that you know what guys this is what i'd recommend for that is the one question that sort of stands out you get quite regularly from from subscribers or from people yeah um i get asked a lot about my a levels i did a video fairly recently i think it was on a level results day this year which sort of explained my story and off the back of that and legal cheek actually ran that as a story and and off the back of that probably at least three or four times a week i get an inbox to say you know watch your video absolutely love it i've got terrible a levels you know what's your kind of advice to me and it, it's a difficult question to answer because everybody's situation is so unique. There's not one piece of generic advice that I would give to someone with, you know, poor academics or, you know, academics that they wish were better to kind of say this is the secret to getting around it because everybody wants different things. Yeah. You know, I was very focused on what I wanted to achieve. I therefore kind of found ways to get there. Um, so I think you need to have a clear goal as to what you want to achieve and then you can work out how to get there. But I think it's important to know, to really have a good reason for wanting to get into law. What's your passion? You know, not just it's a stable career and it's going <laughs> to yeah. pay me well yeah. um, because that novelty wears, wears off real quick. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, we, should, we should point out we're recording after a long day in court for oh, you today, right? I literally <laughs> just walked out of court. So yeah, I can tell you that, yeah, the novelty wears off quickly so you've got to have a real passion for for what you do and i think that's the first question that everybody should be able to answer before they even start yeah. on their journey is what do they want to do this for what's your reason and have a good reason for that and then you can almost work from that point to say right well this is why i love the law this is why i want to do it and then what area of law what type of firm you know is best going to help me to to achieve that goal and to realize that passion that i have for the law and, and yeah, so there isn't kind of one answer. Uh, yeah, I get a lot of people just saying, oh, what's your advice to me? Well, you know, I've got to ask you 10 questions, you know, and then by the time I've asked you those 10 questions, you should know the answer yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to give generic advice, um, but I, I do my best. <laughs> Good for you. Well, come on then, Legal Tech, you are an avid supporter of all things Legal Tech, innovation, <laughs> proud pioneer of Legal Ed Tech. Explain to us and tell us more about that. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of of Legal Tech. I kind of stumbled across Legal Tech a couple of years ago, actually, um, because I do a lot of reading. I read 
an absurd amount, actually. Um, I usually spend at least the first 45 minutes of my day reading articles on LinkedIn and Twitter and and trying to, you know, understand what's going on in the legal market because I'm I'm really interested. Um, and that's why I kind of report on it as well on on LAB. Um, so yeah, I kind of came across it as they're kind of becoming more and more prevalent in articles that I was reading on LinkedIn and people who I really admired and respected were talking a lot about technology and how this was impacting the profession. I read a book um by Richard Suskind, which I think every lawyer should read, called Tomorrow's Lawyers which talks about how important technology is going to be in the future. And I think it was probably that book, actually, that really got me into it and really made me realize how important technology was going to be to the future of the legal profession. And from that point onwards, I just started reading more and more about it, going to more and more events and talking more and more about it on social media. I think getting involved in forums, going to lots of events. Um, I've been to Legal Geek the last few years, which I think is amazing. You get so much information from there and meet so many great people. I've, I've met a couple of my mentors actually through Legal Geek, yeah. um, which is which is brilliant. And yeah, so I, I've, I've always been, you know, in the last couple of years, I've just been more and more engaged with what's going on in the legal tech scene and how and how we can kind of impart this onto junior lawyers or aspiring lawyers, I think, because it's difficult when you're an aspiring lawyer, if you're not in the market, if you're not in the industry practicing, it's very difficult to understand how it applies. I think there's a huge kind of gap in knowledge between you being a law student at university and you being a lawyer in practice. And no amount of of reading can really close that gap, I think. You've kind of so I sort of try and be a conduit for that to try and kind of match the two together in some kind of vaguely relatable way. So I try and break technology down into into what I think aspiring lawyers need to know about it because there's there's a lot of hype around legal tech, I think, yeah. as well. Huge amount of hype is only trying to make out that all lawyers need to code and suddenly we all need to be technologists, which I don't believe at all. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of synergy between the two, but I still believe that lawyers should be lawyers and technologists should be technologists. Yeah. Um, so and, and I think from the point of view of students, I get so many students who are who message me and say, Oh, should I go on this coding course and should I learn to program this and that and is and I just think no. no <laughs> but this just, this just is but this is kind of what the media would have you believe, I think, if yeah. you if you kind of read too much into it. It's really hard, I think, to to separate as a student what you need to know and, and what you don't need to know. So putting you on the spot then, what can law firms be doing to embrace more legal tech then? What do you think you would like to be seeing more as sort of standard? Because some law firms are ahead of others, right, in terms of what they're doing for, for, for legal tech. But what would you be like to see as a sort of standard? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in there kind of isn't one right answer for everyone. I think your the technology that you use should be entirely relevant to your clients and your business. So I don't necessarily think there's one piece of tech that everyone should yeah. be using. I mean, I think there should be a general, I think all law firms should generally be working towards trying to be more efficient and trying to provide better value for money for their clients. That should always be kind of at the heart of the business model, I think. But also sort of being aware of what tech your clients are using and what your clients are are doing and what they're 
I think what what their challenges are, and I think you've got to be aware, you've got to be on the same level as your clients. So if you've got clients who are who are kind of talking about their cloud-based solutions and X, Y, that you need to be able to understand what that is and yeah. advise them. So I, I think everybody is is different. I don't think a high street firm should be doing the same thing as you know a magic circle firm. I don't think there necessarily should be a, a standard approach. Um, but I think as, as a baseline, because you get a lot of firms who say, oh, we can't innovate and we can't, you know, we can't can't utilize legal tech because we just haven't got the same budget as, as everyone else. We haven't got the same budget as these big firms. You know, we can't carve out money from all these areas just to start, you, you know, innovating. We just don't have that. And I, I think there's a lot of really basic things that you can do to improve your efficiency. I think uh, I read a stat somewhere, I can't remember the exact percentage, but the, you know, the average, the average lawyer can use something like 20% of the facilities of Microsoft Office. Wow. Uh, and they don't know how to use 80% of them. And actually, if you can teach your if you can teach your staff how to use the other 80%, you're going to maximize efficiency hugely without having spent any money at all. Yeah. I mean, you might have spent money on getting a trainer in to train them for an hour, but you haven't actually shelled out anything more on your tech budget. And you've massively, you've massively increased how efficient your business is. So I think there are small things that you can do to to massively improve to massively improve that without actually shelling out a lot of cash and i think and and equally there are other pieces of technology you know there are case management systems which don't cost a huge amount to run per month i mean there are some systems which do you know the more complex ones like artificial intelligence obviously but i don't think they're suitable for every business i think a lot of businesses are rallying around trying to kind of make AI fit into their business somehow and pay for it. And I I think you should only ever be using technology to solve an existing problem. You should be looking at your business and looking at where you think there need to be improvements and then finding the tech to fit to fit in with that rather than just saying, right, all the tech's out there. We need to implement all this tech and find something for it to do. I think that's, I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, because of the kind of innovation hype, if you like, I I do think a lot of firms are are doing that and kind of looking at it the wrong way around. Um, So you might find that some firms don't need to innovate as much as others because they're already really efficient. Yeah. Fair enough. And I think we chatted as well before we, we came on air as well about the legal profession that's changing. I know you make the point about lawyers should be lawyers and technology should be technologists. And, and I get that. But what do you think you would say to legal professionals in terms of future options that might be out there for lawyers in terms of all of this new tech and roles emerging? What would you say or offer your insights into that? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it depends what your goals are and, and what you want to do. And I think if you're if you have got your heart set on being a lawyer um, in a magic, you know, in a magic circle firm or in a top firm and working your way up to partner, then I think you still need to focus your skill set on being an expert lawyer. If you want to progress your career as a lawyer, then you're going to progress by developing your expertise in your field. However, I think the more flexible you are and the more adaptable you are and the more kind of open to new technology arising, the better, because I think that lawyers who are open to innovation are going to do a lot better than lawyers who don't effectively. Um, But I don't think that you necessarily need to stray into the realms of understanding how all of the technology works. I don't think you need to know how to code. Um, I don't think you know how to write the programs, how to fix the programs. Well, you don't even necessarily need to know exactly what type of technology fits 
fits the problem necessarily. I think you just need to be aware of it and you need to be open to it. And I think, in, especially in a lot of firms, I think I think the best way forward is really collaboration. I think work, lawyers working with technologists is, is, is a much better solution than lawyers becoming technologists. I think having multidisciplinary teams and especially kind of interdisciplinary management boards, I think is, is really the key actually to running a successful business is having lots of different people with lots of different skill sets all working together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are now, I think legal tech is kind of a whole industry in itself. I mean, 10 years ago, probably even five or six years ago, wasn't really a job role that was available. And now I know loads of students who are kind of, who have gone into working for legal tech companies, actually, um, as a kind of starting point with the aim of, of potentially qualifying later, but because they've got that skill set and that's such an attractive skill set to have now is understanding technology. Um, that I, I think that's often a really good route to go, or at least to get some work experience working for a legal tech provider is a really good idea because it will look great on your CV because all law firms see technology and go, yes, she can help us with our technology. Yeah. So it's a really attractive asset, I think, to have had some experience in some facet of technology yeah. if you can get it for sure. And that's really interesting. So I was just going to ask you the next question in terms of now we are in 2020, this brand new decade. What do you think are going to be some of the biggest changes over this current decade then to the legal sector? What do you think you're going to see? Like you say, legal tech was kind of not really around. Now it's mm. well and truly slap bang in our faces. What do you think this next decade's got for the legal sector? Like well, that? I think we've kind of had the tech boom, if you like. We've had the technology really taking off in itself. And I think what you're going to get now is sort of almost the aftermath of that, which is businesses changing their business models, perhaps new style businesses opening up who are going to take advantage of how that technology can help them. And also it's sort of in conjunction with how regulation has recently changed and the different and the different qualification process now. It seems to be a load of changes that have all come are all coming together at a really critical time, which I think is going to make a huge difference to how the landscape looks looks in five or 10 years. And we've got the big four as well, who are now coming in to, to practice, you know, who are offering legal services. And I think there's going to be a huge change actually in just how the landscape looks generally. I think it's there's going to be a lot of different types of legal services provider. I don't think it's, I think historically I've always thought of, oh, you need a lawyer, go to a law firm. And I think that's going to be different yeah. in the future. I think there, there's going to be very different ways of, of finding lawyers, very different ways of practicing law. And I think, you know, consumer, consumers are kind of king at the moment, actually. I think it used to or be queen. a case. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll be PC about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it's a consumer's market, really, for, for legal out there at the moment. There's so much competition and there's so many different ways of getting your legal services and different ways of having those services delivered that I think it's going to be constantly evolving and you're constantly going to have new types of business popping up, new types of lawyer popping up. New, you know, you've already got, you know, all of these kind of different types of app and legal tech that, you know, matching clients with lawyers that, you know, I just think that was something that just wouldn't have existed yeah. years ago. You never would have, you never would have got, you know, your clients putting your problem on an app and then it being matched to, to a lawyer. You know, this is just an alien concept, but I think you are going to get that. And I, I really think that it's going to be dictated really in, a, in the future by what consumers want. Yeah. And that's how it's going to be shaped, I think. Yeah, well said. And look, um, I know it's a hotly discussed and debated topic. So in a word, yes or no, SQE, yes or no? Oh, ah, 
tough. I don't think you can answer yes or no. Mm. Uh, if you, got, if <laughs> okay, you could you see me, you see me squirming <laughs> on my seat. Depends what day of the week you ask me and what, what's come out the day before. I think in concept, yes. Mm-hmm. In practice, I'm not sure. It's okay. probably the most diplomatic way that I can put it, I think, because I really like the idea of the SQE, putting the power back with the graduate, taking away the sort of training contract bottleneck and allowing people to qualify in different ways, different types of establishment, and kind of making it about your experience level, um, I think is is a great idea. I think it's going to be great for accessibility, great for diversity, and it's going to get a lot more people into law um, than potentially are able to, to, to be in law at the moment. So I think tick for that. I really like the thought process behind it. Um, how is it going to be implemented? Difficult. It's it's very difficult, I think, to know how this is going to pan out in practice because no one's really giving any f- nothing. No one's giving anything away about how they're going to tackle this. I mean, you've got some. I mean, you've got like Deloitte who have already jumped straight in with their three-year yeah. SQE training contract, taking it, you know, taking advantage of it straight away. But most law firms are reserving their position, to put it legally, as we would say. <laughs> Uh, you know, have not really given much away about how they're going to recruit or whether they're going to recruit differently. And my my feeling and from what I do know from from a lot of firms is that they're probably going to recruit in much the same way, actually, because, you know, why would they do it any differently? It served them well so far. So I think in terms of if your dream is to work in a law firm, then I think you're going to face a very similar landscape to how it is now, actually. I still think they're going to probably recruit a couple of years in advance. They're going to put you through yeah. a similar process to the training contract. They perhaps might put you through a prep course um, alongside SQE1, SQE2, and then you'll be qualified at the end of it, which is very similar to how it is now. I think where the SQE really comes into its own, actually, is if you kind of want to go an alternative way. I think it opens up new opportunities to go into different types of legal business. And I think that's where people are going to find, I mean, the SQE is is not necessarily intended to make it easier to, 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 you know, to, to get into a law firm. It might, I don't think it's going to make it easier at all, actually. I mean, I think it's, the exam is going to be super tough as well. It's not kind of a get out of jail free card. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't need a training contract anymore. Well, you've still got to sit in an 11 hour exam. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and that's just SQE1. We know a little bit more about SQE1 now than we did a few months ago. So we know it's going to be multiple choice. We know it's going to be over two days, 11 hour exam. Um, and it's pretty grueling. So yeah. it's it's by no means kind of an, an easy option, I don't think. But it's just it's just different. And it's much more similar now to the New York bar, I think. Very similar to how the qualification process is in in the US. So there's still a lot of unknowns, I think. And it's really hard. I mean, another, probably my second biggest question that I get asked is I was planning to do the GDL next year. And now I don't know because the SQE is coming in, what should I do? And I just, you know, start tearing my hair out because it's a really hard question to answer. Really, really hard because we just don't know. The planned implementation date is 2021. They say that it needs to be 2021 to tie in with the solicitor apprenticeship exams because they need an endpoint exam. So 
by all accounts, it looks like it is going to be 2021. Um, but equally, that's not absolutely set in stone. I wouldn't want to change somebody's career plans, yeah. you know, on that basis. I would feel very conscious of doing that. But similarly, telling someone to do the GDL, which is effectively going to be a dead course, you know, it's, it's not a course that's going to exist. You know, there's no need to do a law degree uh, once the SQE comes in, in theory, and it costs a lot of money. So I'm also hesitant to say, yeah, sure, spend, you know, 15 grand doing a GDL, which, you, you know, which you're not going to need ostensibly if, yeah. if you believe what, what's going on with the SQE. So very difficult question to answer at this stage. Um, and it's but you managed I to get... answer it with more than yes and no. So that was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> you got in there. Were you trying to cut me off at yes or no? You should, you should know better. You know what my yeah. views are on the SQE. So re- really difficult. I think I am, you know, basically pro. Yeah. I just hope that it's executed in a way that it, it actually executes what it's intended to do in principle. That's And if it does that, I'll be really happy with it. Good. Well said. And look, to to finish up, just before we kind of round off, we both share a love for travel. I know you've got a sort of passion for New York, the Middle East. So for downtime, you know, Chrissy Wolf gets downtime. What do you like to do? Where do you like to go? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm a fan of the Middle East. I will jet off to Dubai as often as I possibly can. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed just a few days here and there, actually just a long weekend. Um, I did used to work in Ibiza in my youth for several years. So I often try and get there at least once a year yeah. to go and have a bit of time out there, a bit of sunshine. Um, US, I try and go again as much as I can, but it usually ends up being every two or three years. Um, I do have some family over there as well because my, my dad's from the US. so. I'd like to get a bit of the US in there as well. So yeah, those are probably my my top destinations. I would like to travel a bit more. I'd like to do a bit more of Europe. I've done a yeah. lot of the rest of the world, funnily enough, but not a huge amount in Europe. So I'd like to do some city breaks or something. Maybe that's my my plan when I ever get some some downtime, which is rare. <laughs> which is rare. Well, well, listen, Chrissy, from from my side, thanks a million. It's been a real pleasure having you on. I'm sure you'll feature again at some point on the Legally Speaking podcast, but I'd like to wish you all of your future endeavours all the very best and um, if people want to get in touch with you I'll just leave you to give a final shout out how they can follow you and kind of get in touch what are all the main things we'll put it all in the writing as we do the follow up but how can people get in touch with you yeah all of the social media platforms basically so yeah LinkedIn Chrissy Wolf YouTube obviously Law and Broader and Twitter and Instagram I'm on at Seawolf underscore LAB most of it's academic but Instagram's a bit of fashion as well if you're into that so I could probably take some tips off that and on that note uh, over and out. Thank you.